0: Thank goodness we have a Lord who continues to forgive and show grace and mercy. Amen? Amen. All right. Amen or oh me today as we crank up. Since our population increased by about 25% since I said welcome, let me say welcome again. (laughs) Glad you're here. Glad you're part of us. Anthony, welcome home. Glad to have you here, brother. Good to do. All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer before we open up his word. Father, we ask today that you would use these words um, from your word to teach us anew how much you love us, how much you want us to grow in our trust and dependence on you, how futile our efforts are when we try to live this life on our own. We're plugged into the Holy Spirit, Lord, but we're not turning him on. And so, Father, we ask today that you would use these words, Lord, as a challenge to us to answer this really difficult question that James proposes to us. So, Father, as we go into this time, give us a few minutes. Lord, soften our hearts. And most importantly, as we leave here today, Lord, allow us to um, use these words in application for our lives so that we can be a shining example for you as we go throughout our days. Lord, I am so, so unworthy to stand here, but through your grace, you've called me. And so, Lord, I ask that you would use, um, you would use me today as a vessel. For your word, and Lord, um, as always, if, if there are things that I have down that you don't want proclaimed, Lord, take them away. And Father, fill me with your Spirit and give me the words that you would like proclaimed today, so that there's less of me here and more of you. We ask these things in Christ's name, Amen. Amen. So today, our the topic of our discussion is boom. Now, see, count it all joy but you've got to put a question mark on the end of it, so that means you've got to lilt your voice up. Count it all joy. Like, what? Really? Are we supposed to? Hopefully, at the end of this, we'll go from a question mark to an exclamation point. That's the goal, anyway. So, let's get a little understanding of where we are. Our text is going to be in James chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. But who is James? So, James is the half-brother of Jesus. Uh, Not James the Apostle, but James the half-brother of Jesus. And we know a couple of things about him. Number one is, like all of Jesus' other brothers, they rejected him as Messiah when he was on the earth. Holly, can I have um, John 7, 5? Sorry, I got her confused. So what's happening in, in, in John chapter 7 is Jesus is at home, his brothers are his family, they're getting ready to go to a big festival or feast in Jerusalem. And his brothers basically mock him and say, aren't you going to go up and show off a little bit? I'm paraphrasing, but that's what they meant. And in this verse tells us in John 7, 5, for not even his own brothers, those that had grown up with him, and he believed in him, they did not believe he was the Messiah. That he was the son of God. And what's interesting is what we see in James, what we learn about James just from two verses. One from there and then one from Galatians 2.9. Is that James went from being a non-believer to somebody who was on fire for the Lord. So what it says in Galatians 2.9 is, And recognizing the grace, this is Paul talking. That has been given to me, James and Cephas, or Peter and John. So that's James, Jesus' half brother, not James as in James and John, sons of thunder, who were uh, reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So, They're going to go to the Gentiles and they're going to go to the Jews. But what's saying is, so in this period of time between when Paul is writing the letter to Galatians and when Jesus had gone to the cross and then ascended, James got saved. And not only had he been saved, he was known in Jerusalem. And if you go and you read Acts about the Jerusalem council, he was a pillar in the church. In other words, he was known as a man of faith. So you see a great conversion, someone who mocked Jesus to someone who, who was a pillar of faith. And what that should tell us is that it doesn't matter what our background is, it doesn't matter what the background is of some of your friends or your family, Jesus can change their lives. Because he changed James' life, right? He changed my life. And so he can change anyone's life. So as we start into that, you know, again, James wasn't running around saying, look at me, look at me, look at me, but it's a great way for people to see who James is because what we're going to talk about here in these first eight verses of chapter 1 is really a lot about what James was all about and, 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 and what he meant to those that were around him. So let's read our text, which is James 1, 1 through 8. It says, James, a bondservant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. This is it. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith yep, knowing the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if you do lack any wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. They took the clock down, so I need to get my clock. Y'all don't want to be here until four, do you? <laughs> all right. So let's tackle these verses. And all we're going to do is just this, this is simple. We're just going to take them one at a time, tear them apart, figure out what they mean, what's God trying to tell us, and then how do we apply it to our lives so that we can live here and this can make an impact on our kingdom work tomorrow or maybe even this afternoon. So... Verse 1, it's interesting because when you look at verse 1, this is a verse, oftentimes these intro verses are so easy just to gloss right past them and read, but yet there's meaning there, otherwise the Holy Spirit wouldn't have put them in. So look what he says. He says, James, a bondservant of God and the Lord Jesus to the 12 tribes who were dispersed abroad. Greetings. So look at the first thing, bondservant. What is that? Greek is doulos, means slave. So James says, I was a... I was an unbeliever. I mocked the Lord, right, which he did. And now he says, I, am a, I have voluntarily put myself in as a slave, as a doulos to the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm a slave. So what is a slave? Let's look at three things. A, a slave implies absolute obedience. Slaves don't get to go, you know, I don't really think I want to do that today. No, absolute obedience, absolute humility, Which means that they're looking up and saying the master's always right. And then thirdly, absolute loyalty. So the question, just look at one real word, James, a bondservant of God and Jesus Christ. Are you a doulos? Are you a slave? Are you sold out? Is, Is is God's priority in your life first and foremost every day? Should it be? I think so. So the question you have to ask yourself is, what got to James to get him to be able to say, I'm a slave to Jesus? Can we get that same thing? Where did that come from? Was it humility? I think it had to have been because he had to humble himself before his brother, right, who who he had been mocking. And I would infer to you that if in John 7 he mocked Jesus, that wasn't the first time and probably wasn't the last that he did. So he continued to mock Jesus, and then he humbled himself. So I think what that really says is what James has done is he realizes who he was and now who he is and what happened during that transition to get him there. Now, interestingly, you go to the next, next clause in that, in, that, in that verse. It says he's writing to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. And, you know, again, you can go fast through that and think, why, do, why does he need to tell us that? So what is it? It's the 12 tribes that are gone, and what are they doing? They've, they've been spread out all over the known world. So it's, it's interesting because when you think about what happened, how did the Jews get spread out? The, the promised land is Israel, right? So you would think they all want to be in Israel. Well, they did. But then what happened? How did they get dispersed? Well, they got dispersed because, for a lot of reasons, but kind of the, the big premise is they weren't paying attention and doing what God told them to do. And so because of their sin... Choose to sin, choose to suffer. God allowed different people to come in and capture them. The Assyrians, the Babylonians, which then turned into the Medes, into the Persians, into the Greeks, and now, when James is writing, the Romans. So for 700-plus years, the Jews have been in captivity in one way or another. And so part of that, so think about the Babylonian captivity. What did they do? They came and they gathered the Jews, and then they took them and they scattered them out throughout the empire— Of the Medes and the Persians, the Babylonians, Medes, and Persians. Babylonians, Medes took them over, Persians took them over. And so that was the known world. In fact, if you go to, you read the book of Esther, what you'll see is that the Jews were scattered everywhere. Well, if you think about why were they scattered, if if I think about it and and I think about it in a worldly perspective, from a flesh perspective, why would God allow his people to get out of the promised land to get scattered all over the world? It doesn't seem logical to me. But at the same time, when we look down and we read through this, what do we we understand? If you go and you look at Paul's missionary journeys, what did he do every time he went to a new city? Spread throughout wherever he was traveling. He went to the synagogue. So every time the Jews got scattered, they planted their flag. There was a synagogue in town. And so think about it. The old... why do we have the Old Testament and the New Testament? If we really, we just kind of need the New Testament, because that's what Jesus is about. But Jesus is all the way back through the Old Testament. The thread comes all the way through. So the basis for Christianity is you have to understand who God is, and the fact that he can't tolerate sin, and that there's heaven and hell and there's wrath, right? And there's, and there's, there's righteousness, Well, you got to understand that from the Old Testament to understand why do I need a Savior? Why did it have to be a blood sacrifice? Well, that takes us all the way back to the Old Testament. See where I'm going with this? So that now the Jews, when they go scattered about, which wasn't their choice, by the way, but they planted their flag, they put their synagogues in, so then when Paul went in, he could preach to the Jews and he could potentially get converts there. So think about it. Paul was, Paul's mission really was to take the word to the Gentiles, right? Because remember, Paul was a hater. And so he said, God said, You're going to take my word to the Gentiles. But by taking these towns that already had synagogues in them, you could put Jewish converts in who could then help the, help the Gentiles who had no background from the Old Testament, which, by the way, they had the Old Testament then. It was called the Oracles of God, which are the history books and the prophetic books and, the, um, uh, and, and Psalms and Proverbs. So all of those are there so they could teach that through. It's important that you go all the way back. Why? Do you remember the, the story of Jesus on the road to Emmaus? After he had died and, and rose for, again, he comes along. These two guys, they're walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus, and he comes alongside. They don't know who he is. And they say, well, don't you know all the bad things that have happened? This guy, Jesus, we thought he was the Savior, and now they've killed him. And what did Jesus do? He walked them through, as he did, the walk to Emmaus. He walked, oh, that's your shirt. I like that. Very good, Anthony. Uh, He walked them all the way through the Old Testament to show himself to these Jews. And at the end, they went, wow, we get it. We get it. Understand. So do you see what I see in this? when I see in this just this little half verse to the 12 tribes dispersed abroad is I see the sovereignty of God. See, God has the big picture involved. So the small picture would be, I'm a Jew in in Jerusalem. The Babylonians have come and attacked us and they're dragging me like Daniel, dragged off to Babylon. Doesn't seem like a good story to me. It wouldn't be the way I would have written it. But God wrote it that way so he could disperse his people so that he could then do what? Because remember, God no longer dwells. After Jesus came out of the grave, he no longer dwells in the temple in Jerusalem. Doesn't need to do that anymore. Because what? He dwells in our hearts. Do you see the difference? He doesn't need Jerusalem anymore. He knew he didn't need the temple anymore. Therefore, he scattered his people so that the the message of salvation could go to all the folks in the world. You see the sovereignty of God. If you don't understand the sovereignty of God, these verses will not make sense to you because they're supernatural. That's what they're about. So let's look at it. let's look at a little bit let's look at a little bit more of this as we go through. Now, when you think of the sovereignty of God, the sovereignty of God that came out of the trials. So you see the trials that the Jews went through? They got scattered abroad. Now, some of it was their own doing, right? Because they chose not to follow what God said. But he used those trials to get his sovereign plan to bring everything together and make it work properly. That's what God is all about. And so what does that tell you and me? It tells us that he holds it all together Nothing happens without his knowledge and his plan is perfect and that means that his plan for you and his plan for me is perfect even when I don't see it because I'm in the midst of a trial. That's where James is going with this. Don't miss it. That's where he's going with this. And he wants us to see the sovereignty. So we have to see his providence as we study these passages regarding trials. So you've got to look big picture about who God is And sometimes what that requires us to do is to look backwards. And what I mean by looking backwards is you got to look back sometimes and go, wow, I remember that. I didn't understand it. And in the rearview mirror, I can see God's hands all over it. Right? But you can't get that until it's behind you and you can see it there. It's hard to see it when it's right in front of you. So what James says is, through the, through the power of the Holy Spirit is, I know how challenging that is, even though they didn't have rearview mirrors back then, they would just look back. Come on, somebody. <laughs> Golly. Whew. All right, y'all, you know, God does have a sense of humor. <laughs> which is why I'm here. <laughs> Amen? Amen? All right, so... James, I love I the book of James, and, and I suspect a lot of you do. I suspect a lot of men really like James, because, you know, I've found over the years what, you know, well, well we, we, are, we are the stubborn side, um, despite what Fred said this morning. Um, we're the stubborn ones, but oftentimes, you know, men need somebody in their face, right? They need somebody. They don't need, hey, you know, I'm not really sure that that's really good behavior. I need somebody pop you right in the forehead and go, hey, man, what's up with that? Right? That's men. That's James. That's what I love about him. He's all about practical application. In fact, you can write at the beginning of the book of James, get her done. Because that's what James is all about, get her done. I don't want to hear you talk about a bunch of stuff. I want to see you doing stuff. I'll show you my faith by my actions. Isn't that what he says? I'll show it to you. That's the whole key. You know, James is, this is why I like to think about James. James is like a coach, right? So he's just introduced himself, right? So if you think about his letter, Think about him taking this letter and going to a church, right? He walks in and says, Hey, I'm James, Dulas, bond servant. And, and you know, and then he goes right in. He does it mix around. Hey, how are y'all doing? How's the family? What's going on with y'all? Look at what he said. James is like a coach. So think about the first time you ever had a coach. And you walk up and go say, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm Coach James, and, you know, we're glad you're here. You know, our team is, you know, we're all about spirit, we're all about camaraderie. We, you know, we want to we use this athletic competition, not just for winning, but we want to use it to grow character and all this stuff. No, no, James is the coach who says, watch this, James, servant of Christ, I'm gr- here, I'm greeting you, consider it all joy. So James' coach walks up and says, hey, I'm the coach, I'm James, start doing push-ups. <laughs> what? I mean, aren't we going to talk about team? No. No, we're going to get in shape. Start doing push-ups. I'm the coach. We'll deal with the team stuff later. If you're not in shape, we can't play the game anyway. Ooh, wait a minute. That's what he's saying to us. Are you in shape? Are you in good enough shape when that trial comes along that you're not going to fall over and get bulldozed? That's what he means. That's what he's telling us. Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials. So we're going to spend a lot of time today looking at definitions of words because we got to understand where he's taking us because there, there's a, there's a, there's a, there, it, this is a theme it builds on itself. So look at the first part, uh, verse 2. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. And that's why I put the question mark in the title. Joy, trials, those two don't really go together. They're not synonyms to me, they're antonyms. But what James says is, here's the definition. When you encounter means trials are coming. Okay? So, I mean, that's the whole thing. So, you're not going to get through the Christian life without trials. That's anti-prosperity gospel right there. So, if you have some friends, family that are caught up in this prosperity gospel stuff, read them that and say, how do you put those two together? Do do they dovetail? Because if they don't, then one's right, one's wrong. Now figure out which one is. Okay, so the Greek verb of trials is translated. It means now. Watch this: testing directed towards an end. Trials means testing in the Greek. Testing directed towards an end. In other words, it's not a test just to be a test. God's not sitting up there going, "All right, let's see if you can pass this one, bub." That's not. That's not what he's. That's not what he's about. So these trials, when they come along, so we know they're coming, right? And he says, when they come along, so it's not a test, but it is a test to produce something. Don't miss that. To produce something. What's he trying to do? Together, so put those two together, it's testing directed towards producing something. It's not a punitive test. God isn't sitting up there looking, at, well, you, you know, you haven't really been behaving very well lately, so that's not what it's about. It's a, he's allowing things to come into our lives, and hopefully we'll see this. And his goal is simplistic. Drive us to Him. Drive us away from ourselves and to Him. Now, look what it says again. Consider it all joy. Now, again, sometimes the English in this because it depends on what you what pops in your brain when you think the word consider. Now, consider may be well, do I want the hamburger or chicken for lunch? Okay, I got to consider. I got two. uh, It's not really that way. What it really means, I think, sometimes a better definition of it would be at least for me, is evaluate. Watch this. Evaluate joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials. Oh. You know what evaluate to me means? I got work to do. So if I got to evaluate it it means I got to lay the problem out, right? And I got to start evaluating what's this all about. So in other words, it's going to take thinking, it's going to take time in God's Word. It's going to take time in prayer. And it may take us being with our brothers and sisters in Christ because we know we can't get through this trial alone. That's why we're called a family of God. That's why we come together. We know each other. We should, right? And we know, we talked about that this morning, you know, when, when, when our hearts break because our brothers and sisters in Christ's hearts are breaking, right? That's what that's all about um, when we do that. Pray for Carolyn Frost. She's still in the hospital, right? Pray for Gary. He wants to get her home. So we need to remember, keep Carolyn on your prayers today, right? Because Sunday morning, you think she'd rather be here or where she is? She'd rather be here. But she's going through a trial right now. So back to the providence of God. Now watch this. When God allows various trials in our lives, we need to evaluate the trial with joy, knowing... That is a plan through it to produce growth in our spiritual life. That's the first thing we do. You want to evaluate. Say, okay, here's the trial. Don't really want this trial, but it's here. Can't do anything about it. So what am I going to do? I got to get proactive. I got to do something about it. I can't just sit back. I can't crawl into a fetal position. Well, you can, but it's not going to accomplish anything. So what we do is we look at, we evaluate the trial. I'm going to evaluate the trial with joy. Lord, I don't understand this. And I'm going to do my best, and we're going to teach you how to turn this from, maybe tragedy might be be a strong word, but turn it into joy. Because does anybody like trials? No? Okay, all right, just making sure. Um, So it is to produce growth in your spiritual life. Nothing else, by the way. So maybe the answer is not going to be the answer you want, but it's the answer God knows you need in order to produce spiritual growth. So verse 3. Just blocking and tackling here, people. Knowing, okay, so we're going to take, we, we encounter the trials, we know we will. Then verse 3 says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Okay? What's that mean? What's that mean? I'll give you an idea. Knowing, knowing what? Knowing two things. So the first thing, is, and it kind of dovetails in where Conrad did his series on the question, Why? But here is what we need to know. Knowing that, so, I'm, so there was a scripture says, I am supposed to trials come along. I am supposed to know something that's going to produce joy. Follow it. What knowing means two things. Number one, that God is sovereign over every trial. Never forget that God has not forgotten about you. He hadn't allowed something to happen in your life just because He wasn't paying attention. He was asleep at the switch. Okay. Secondly, um, that the trial is to build your endurance. Now, let me give you a better definition of endurance. Spiritual toughness. Spiritual toughness. That's what endurance is. So put it together. Count it all joy when you do encounter trials, because you will, knowing that the trial or the testing of your faith, the trial, will produce spiritual toughness. Why do we need to be spiritually tough? Because it's a tough world. And things are not going to always go the way we want them to go. The the, uh, NLT translates the verse this way, and I really like it. It says, when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. Your spiritual toughness has a chance to grow, right? You can't get calluses on your hands thinking about using a shovel. Let it sink in, right? You can't get calluses on your hands thinking about using a shovel. You can't get spiritually tough when things are good. Just because, you know, I think think, you know, I think this week I'm going to get spiritually tough. Okay, well, I mean, how hard is that going to be? I mean, what are you going to do? What challenges are you going to put in front of you to really get spiritually tough? You know, you put a challenge that would probably be a 3 on a scale of 10. God says, no, no, man, here, take a 10 trial. Let's see how we get through that. Right? I mean, it's kind of like working out. If you work out by yourself, are you really going to push hard? But if you work out with somebody else, who's going, one more. Right? You Push it again. That's what it's doing. It produces endurance or spiritual toughness. It implies, what that verse implies, is that without trials, you can't get spiritually tough. That's what it means. We need trials to get spiritually tough. And we're going to talk about why we need to get spiritually tough. So look at verse 4. And let endurance or let spiritual toughness... Have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. All right. Well, I know I'm not perfect, so I got some work to do on that. I know I'm not complete, so I got some work to do on that. So as long as I say I'm not perfect and I'm not complete, then God still has work to do on me, and he's got to make me spiritually tough, and the best way for him to do that is through trials. We want to think the best way to do it is if you just make everything in my life perfect. But that's not, what, that's not what God is about. And let, or so let, is submission to the challenge. So read it again. Watch this. And let, or so let, so let spiritual toughness, so let yourself be submitted to the challenge of spiritual toughness or spiritual growth. That's what he's doing. He's trying to make it that way. Look at a couple of examples. Paul in uh, 2 Corinthians 12. And you know what happened, right? Paul had this vision and he said, I don't know if I really went, I'm paraphrasing, I don't know if I really went to heaven or if I just had a vision of heaven, but because of the unsurpassing things I saw, my head could get really swelled and I probably wouldn't be very good for the kingdom. So look what happened. 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 9 says, because of the extraordinary greatness of the revelation, what he saw in heaven, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, concerning this trial, concerning this thorn, you can call it trial, what did he do? He said, I pleaded with the Lord 3 times that he might take it from me. And what God what did God say? God said, my grace is sufficient for you, my power is perfected in you in your weakness. Most gladly, this is Paul now talking again, therefore I will rather boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. You see what happened? He got the trial. He said, take the trial away. And God said, again, paraphrasing, God said, nope, not taking the trial away because I need you spiritually tough. And I need you focused on the mission, not focused on the revelation that you saw. And so that's a difference there. Job had the same thing, right? Job 1, says, naked I came, Right from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. Now remember, this is after he lost everything. Right after he lost everything. He lost his family, he lost his money, he lost his house, he lost everything. And what did he say? Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I'll go back. Now what's, what's the best part? Right? In other words, hey man, I got here, I got this trial, nobody ever promised me anything. Blessed be the name of the Lord. What that means is in our trials, we got to count it our joy by saying, God, you're sovereign. I know you're in charge. I know you got a plan for this. I don't see it now. But you know what? I look forward because when I get through it, I'm gonna be spiritually tough. So when the next thing comes along, it won't even bother me. I'm like, another minor trial, here we go. Bring it on. So, why do we need spiritual toughness? We need it to be perfect and complete. Why do we need perfect and complete? in order to accomplish God's will for our lives, right, in our mission for him. Now watch, I said for our lives, not for in our lives, and I think there's a difference. That's why we're here. We're here from kingdom work. So he's got to toughen us up so he can use us for kingdom work, so we won't get discouraged when difficult, uh, uh, difficult challenges come along. That's why he's trying, he's toughening us up for a reason. It's not just to say, hey, we're tough. It's not like getting a badge. Hey, I got the tough badge. No, it's not for that. It's so that he can use us for the kingdom things that he wants us to do, right? I talk about it when we study 1 Corinthians, right? Because are we doing kingdom things, not temporal things? Are we so hung up on gold, silver, precious jewels, right, versus wood, hay, stubble? See, the, the wood, hay, stubble is all the stuff we're so hung up on here. And so God will look down and say, hey, man, you're too, sung, you're too hung up on stuff here. I need you focused on, that's wood, hay, stubble. It's going to burn up. I need you focused on God things, on kingdom things. So let's let this trial slide in, okay, because I need you to depend on me, not to punish you, but so that you grow in dependence on me. That's what, Jan, that's what Paul did when he says that. Because of the things I saw, I asked him to take the thorn away, and God said, hey, my grace is sufficient for you. And you know what he did? He acknowledged, he said, it is. And in my weakness, I will boast that I have no ability to do this for ourselves. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. I preached out of this last week on 16, but you know, 17 is, to me is, is such a great verse. Because It says, all scriptures God breathed, Theo Theonoustos, God breathed, right? And it is beneficial for teaching, rebuke, correction, training, and righteousness. So, but just to do that, if you just take 16, it's like, oh, this is great. All scriptures, God breathed. And it's it's going to teach me, and it's going to reproof me, and it's going to show me, so I'll be all trained up in righteousness, so I have my righteousness bag. No. Why? 17, so that a man or woman of God may be fully capable, equipped for every good work. So, read it backwards. God has good works for you to do. He's got to equip you and make you capable. And oftentimes he's going to use scripture to do that. But see the teaching and rebuke and correction and training in righteousness. A trial is an opportunity for training in righteousness. See the two put together? He's trying to toughen us up. And you know what? It may be a trial that we think, oh, man, this is a bad trial. But you know what? God, again, back to his sovereignty, he knows the trial that's coming that's really tough. And he says, So I got to get you, I gotta get calluses on you so that when it shows up, you're like, got it. I can roll through this, even though it's hard, even though it's difficult. And I can praise him in the middle of the trial. That's the opportunity that he gives to us today. So, all right, that's the first half of our verses. And let me give you three words that when you encounter trials, straight out of the verses, that you ought to see. Verse three what is reaction? Count it all joy. What that means is that's the reaction. Well, I have two reactions. I can count it all joy, or I can count it all really bad. You know, I don't like this. This isn't good. I got no joy in this trial. How could I? So the question you should ask, what's the reaction when the trial comes? It is, will I trust in God? Will I have an attitude of trust in God? Is he faithful? If he is, then count it all joy. If he's not faithful, then don't. But I think you'll find he's always been faithful. Verse 3, knowledge. So go back to verse 3. You don't have to put that up, Ollie. So if you go back to verse 3, it says, knowing that the testing of your faith. So first is consider it all joy. That's your re- what's your reaction when the trial comes. Verse 4 is knowing. What is the knowledge? Will I stand on the reassuring truth that God is allowing this trial in order to produce spiritual toughness? So you can say, Any trial. I know God's allowing this trial to produce spiritual toughness. That means I've got work to do. That's the most important part. And then fourth, verse 4 is submission. And let endurance have its perfect result so that you will be lacking nothing. So I'm submitting to the trial so that I can grow in God's grace. I can grow in God's truth. Look at the last part of that verse. So that I will be lacking in nothing. So that's submission. Will I submit to the idea that God is going to use this trial to equip me to be able to accomplish something that he's called me to do. We all have a calling. Every one of us. right? What's your calling? What's he calling you to do? And whatever it is, he's got to equip you to do it. And oftentimes that equipping, like we talked about, spiritual toughness. You don't get callous just thinking about using a shovel. Right? So verses, three, verses 5 through 8, are going to all they're going to do is build on what we've just learned. Build on the reaction, right? the knowledge, and the submission. So we're going to build on that, and here's how we're going to do it. We're going to build on it, or God's going to build on it with wisdom. So what we learn when we go through verses 5 through 8 is that I don't have the innate ability within me, within my fallen sin nature, to deal with a trial joyfully. It's not there. So what do I need in order to do it? I need godly wisdom in order to understand it. Because it's an easy concept. Oh, yeah, God's sovereign in this. This trial is going to be part of it. But how do I get through it in the dark of night when I'm alone? And I'm not putting on a face for you. That's what he's talking about. So we'll look at that in verses 5 through 8. So let's read them again just so we'll come back to them. But if you lack wisdom, and now again, look in your Bibles. But if you lack wisdom, all right? here's what that means. If you lack wisdom to count it all joy when a trial comes along. You see, 5 through 8 is going to build on 1 through 4. So that's what he means there. If any of you lacks wisdom in order to count it all joy, let him ask God, who gives, all, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. So the concept from here that we look at is count it all joy. We're going to expand on these three words. The concepts alone shows us that, again, that we don't have the ability to count it all joy in our fallen nature because, right, when something goes wrong for you, are you always jumping up and down about it? Woo, this is great. No, we're just the opposite of it, right? When things are going wrong, it's like, why does this have to happen to me? Uh Uh-oh, that's the old pride meter kicking up. This ain't... Fair pride. It should be happening to somebody else. right? It's kind of like when the hurricanes are coming here and you're praying that it goes and hits Louisiana. (laughs) I mean, just take it somewhere else, God. In other words, let it hit those people in Charleston. I don't like them anyway. Same concept when we look at it that way. Uh, So, The idea here is what he's telling us is I don't have, you don't have the innate wisdom to deal with the trial joyfully. So he wants to teach us how. And he's going to here in these verses. So, again, we avoid asking why. We just ask three simple questions. Is God sovereign? Can I endure in such a way to bring glory to him? That's the idea behind it, right? Because then when somebody knows you're in a trial or lots of people know you're in a trial and you're enduring it joyfully, then what are you doing? You're witnessing to them that says, hey, they must be, they must be, they must be leaning on God because I know they couldn't take that, that trial by themselves. Right? And then am I willing to look? Now, here's another one that's tough. Right? This is like David when he says in Psalms, you search my heart, Lord, and show me the sins. That's an ugly prayer, right? Because, you know, I mean, I'm most like, hey, man, I'm just going to gloss over most of these. And so, am I willing to look for the area of spiritual growth that God wants to show me? It's a great opportunity. Am I willing to look for it? And sometimes that looking is going, that looking is going to come from being in God's Word. You've got to be in God's Word more, not less during a trial. You've got to be in prayer. You've got to be leaning out on your brothers and sisters in Christ to help you endure the trial. We go through these things together. So biblical wisdom focuses on practical living. Listen to this. Biblical wisdom focuses on practical living in obedience to God's will, even when we don't understand it. Obedience to his will, even when we don't understand it. Look at Psalm 90, verse 12. So teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. In other words, number of days means we don't have a lot of days. In the grand scheme of things. So don't waste your days not seeking a heart of wisdom. So what does that say? Well, every day I need to be seeking a heart of wisdom. I need to be seeking God's wisdom for all of the things I'm going through. And it doesn't have to just be trials, but what's God's wisdom for that situation? If we're seeking it out, what he says is, man, I can't wait. I, 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 what the psalm means is I can't wait to go get the wisdom some other time. I need to be seeking it out now because I know trials are going to come along. I've got to be spiritually tough, and I'll endure the trials better if I'm tough, and that's what he's wanting us to see. Wisdom, by the way, is, contra- is, 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 is in contrast to the fool. Biblically speaking, the fool is not mentally lacking but morally lacking. There's a the difference. The fool isn't mentally lacking, he's morally lacking. The fool in Proverbs is described as a morally undesirable individual who despises wisdom and discipline. Look at Romans 1 21 through 25. Oh, he's got it there. Uh, so, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him or give him thanks because, their futile mind, uh, because they became futile in their, in their reasonings. And their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of an incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible mankind, of birds and four-legged animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them up to the vile impurity of the lusts of their hearts So that their bodies would be dishonored among them, for they exchanged the truth of God for falsehood, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. That's the mentally lacking, or that's the morally lacking fool. Doesn't mean they don't have wisdom, worldly wisdom, but they don't have godly wisdom. That's the difference between the the wise man. And the fool so I've got to be seeking not wisdom the reason I read that verse is because I don't need to be seeking man's wisdom I need to be seeking God's wisdom because man's wisdom is so inherently flawed and what that says is man thinks I got it all together and God looks down and goes well if you do then why are you worshiping the things I created instead of me who created them that's the death all it's it's simple When we look at that, it's wisdom and discipline. Wisdom begins when we acknowledge our dependence on God, and pride is the opposite because it says I can depend on myself. Human wisdom is inherently flawed. Look at Proverbs 2, 1 through 6. My son, if you will receive my words and treasure my commandments within you, make your ear attentive to wisdom. Incline your heart to understanding. For if you cry out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek her as silver, seek wisdom as silver, and search for her as hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth came come knowledge and understanding. So we need to be seeking godly wisdom, not human wisdom. The root word, interesting, the root word for wisdom here. Is And it's a Hebrew word, and I'll butcher it in the pronunciation, uh, the pronunciation is chacham. And what it means, it's an adjective, and it means a learned skill. So wisdom, is in, the, in that Old Testament context, is a learned skill. It's an adjective. So what does that mean? If he's saying about, if I'm supposed to seek her, seek wisdom as a learned skill, that means I don't know it. That means I have only got worldly wisdom, so I need to seek godly wisdom. In fact, what it it means there, when we look at that Old Testament, is that it was applied to a skillful craftsman who was constantly learning and applying wisdom to every situation, applying God's wisdom to every situation. So we have to humble ourselves and acknowledge that we don't know what we need to live joyfully in trials. See, it all comes back to that first thing, count it all joy. We don't know how to live joyfully in trials, but through God's wisdom and through his understanding. Look what it says. Then you will understand the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom when we seek it, right? So if we have a trial come along and we're in the corner and we're in the fetal position, right? We're not seeking God's wisdom in that situation. So, and we come back to this word endurance because that's part of it. Build spiritual toughness is endurance. See, when I think of endurance, I think of gutting it out, right? Gutting it out. My wife, Megan, used to run a lot of marathons, and she always said, you know, she'd get to mile 17 and hit the wall. So what did she do? She gutted it out through the end of the race. That's gutting it out. That's the way I tend to think of endurance. Biblically, that's wrong. It's wrong, complete wrong thinking, biblically. Let me, let me, let me, let me give that. Endurance, we read this earlier, is an effort required to gain God's wisdom. I'll get spiritually tough by gaining God's wisdom by enduring through the trial with joy. 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 24, says this. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are saved it is the power of God. For it is written that I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. Some will destroy this worldly wisdom, right? And the understanding of those who have understanding I will confound. Where is the wise person? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of the age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God and the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, but were pleased through foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Last part. For indeed Jews ask for signs, Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To Jews a stumbling block, to Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, it is, uh, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. So he goes in verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, ask God. Wisdom here is the wisdom that you can endure the trials so God can perfect your faith. And to perfect their faith, and it says he'll give generously, Right? He will give generously to those who seek him in it. So how, do we get, how does he give generously wisdom to us? It comes through the study and meditation on God's word and prayer. That's where it's going to come from. It can't come from any other way, although it can come through people that can help us in that. But what we want to be careful of is we don't want to get caught up in worldly wisdom right? Getting wisdom from the world. We want wisdom and advice from God. So be careful when you go through a trial that you're not getting someone's opinion about how to deal with the trial. I don't want your opinion. I want what God's word says about that. And there's a great example. We won't go into it today, but if you, if you look at um, uh, Acts, hang on, I got it here somewhere. If you look at Acts when Paul was going on, on a journey, it, it, it's Acts 9. So, what happened was, Paul's getting ready, they're getting ready to get on the boat on a journey. The storms are coming up. And, and again, I'm paraphrasing. And Paul says, You know, I don't think this is the right time to leave port. This is it. That's a man of God who God has said, Not the right time to leave port. But then you get, there get, becomes an argument because the captain of the boat and the owner of the boat said, Nah, no, we can make it. And then the people that were out of said, yeah, come on, let's go to Phoenix. Well, see, they took wisdom from each other instead of pa- Paul's godly wisdom that, would, that said, yeah, you, you shouldn't go there. So be careful getting wisdom from people in the world. People need to be giving you godly wisdom. In other words, if they've got a question for you about how to deal with a trial, you all say, well, you know, I think, mm, 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 Let's see what God's word says. Let's get in prayer about this together and see what God's word says so that we can work through this together. Because you know what? I want to be here with you, man. I want, to be, I want to pray with you. I want to grieve with you over this. I want to hurt when you hurt. And when you come out of that trial and you're spiritually tough, I'll be looking right at you and say, man, this has been great. This has been great. You've done it. You've done it. Will you be there for me when it happens to me? So how does God impart wisdom on us? Through his spirit and through his word. Remember that wisdom—that the wisdom we seek has to do with knowing how to apply biblical truth to life's situation. That's the wisdom you want. How do I apply biblical truth to life's situations, right? Because he says, if you don't, here's the the but in verse six, but he must ask in faith. So there's a condition. If I lack wisdom, ask God, but I have to ask in, in faith without doubting for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. That's what we don't want. It's not a prosperity gospel, but it's saying, if you do, don't doubt. In other words, I'm not going to doubt that through this trial, God will make me spiritually tough and he'll give me spiritual wisdom to come out the other side to say, you know what, I trust you more. That's what he's getting us to do, lean on him. Trials are meant to drive us to God, not to drive us away from him. For in verse 7 he says, that man, the man, this double-minded man in verse 6, ought not to expect anything from the Lord. Who's that? The one who doubts. In other words, if I pray but I doubt God will do anything about it, then I shouldn't expect anything because I'm doubting. We have to do that in faith. A doubter's heart is not surrendered to God completely. And I'll read this, and I've read this before, but but I really like it, and I hope you do too. And this is a definition of the double-minded man, the doubter, the person in in verse 6, doubting who is double-minded, and this is from Pastor Alistair Begg. Here's what it says. It says, the double-minded man refers to a man whose heart is divided between allegiance to God and the allurements of the world. In other words, he's shopping for answers that fit what he wants to do. If God's wisdom sounds good, he'll follow it. But if worldly wisdom sounds better or easier, then he'll follow that. James says in verse seven that such a person will not receive anything from the Lord. He's double-minded, right? He's oh, let me see. You know, I know what God's word says, but let me see if I can find a friend who will rationalize with me this particular thing. We're shopping. You're shopping for the right answer because you don't want God's wisdom. And if you can't find the right answer from somebody, you go, okay, yeah, I'll I'll deal with God's way. But if I can find somebody, then I'll ignore God's way. In fact, John Bunyan in Pilgrim's Progress defined this person as Mr. Mr. Facing Both Ways. Mr. Facing Both Ways. He has a sense of what is right, but a love for what is wrong. Hmm. Got that, Randy? Randy and I have been working through that double-minded man thing. It's good stuff. So, so when does God allow his wisdom through his spirit and his word? Who does, he, who does he give it to? He gives it to those who seek it in faith without doubting. So, what, you know, we have to seek it in faith, and we have to believe that God's going to not necessarily answer our prayer because our first prayer, at least mine, is always just make the thing go away. Right? Isn't that yours? Like Here's the trial. Oh, God, take this from me. Right? Isn't that what Jesus said in the garden? Lord, if there's any other God, Father, if there's any other way, let that cup ease on down to the next person. But nevertheless, thy will be done. That's the proper perspective. Jesus taught us that. James is teaching us this too. In contrast to the doubter, God reveals his wisdom to those whose hearts are ready to obey him i got to be ready to obey. And you know what? Go back to Paul. God, Paul, God, Paul said, take the trial away. And God said, no. You'll endure this through my grace. you got to be prepared for the fact that the answer to the trial may be not now. Maybe not ever. Faith. We'll close with this. Just like we saw the providence of God when he allowed his people to be captured and scattered throughout the world. Um, Think of Isaiah. His ways are so high above ours. And he did that in order for his perfect plan of salvation to be spread throughout the known world at that time. He He had the big picture in mind. So when it comes to our trials, even though they may be huge trials to us, God's got a big picture in mind. And mostly wants a spiritual tough. Same way God has a providential, person, providential purpose for allowing trials into our lives. He has a plan and a mission for our lives to impact his kingdom. Not to make our lives perfect. Not to make our lives just as easy as they can be. For his kingdom. So if his purpose for his kingdom is to have you in a... Never ending trial, so that His grace can be shown through how you deal with it, so be it. Amen. That's the hard part, man. That's the hard part of this application. There's no end date necessarily. Could be. Could be. Simply stated, He has work to do, God has work to do on earth, and He desires to equip us with godly wisdom, learn through trials that make us spiritually tough to apply biblical truth to all life's situations. Count it all joy. No question marks. Explanation point. Amen? Amen. Alright. Aaron? Folks, come up. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for an opportunity again to share your word and tough lessons, Lord, um, because none of us like trials, but yet you have a plan through all of them. Lord, you are so sovereign and, and you have our best in mind always, Lord. You want to grow us towards you, towards your love, towards your truth, towards your foundation because we know that everything else will let us down but you will not. And so, Lord, we, as we go through this, this time of trials and all of us, we're either in one or we came out of one or we're headed to one. Lord, let us us recognize that you need us spiritually tough so that we can accomplish your mission on earth for us. And when we're done with that mission, then we know you'll take us home. So if we're still here, mission forward. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.